I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as you're turning, please accept my gratitude for your prayers as I went to be examined by the presbytery for ordination exams. Last time I preached and asked for your prayers, someone told me, I won't say good luck to you because that would not affirm God's sovereignty. I thought, what a, what a great Calvinist this guy is. Then he went on to say, instead I'll say, may the force be with you. <laughs> okay, sounded good at first. Got more work to do. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 We'll conclude our series in Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians this evening. Would you bow with me in prayer as we ask for God's blessing? Gracious God, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word now. We thank you for bringing us to the end of this day, the day in which you raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he who now reigns in the heavenly sanctuary, interceding for us. And it is in him that we come to you boldly as your children, bought with his precious blood. Lord, as we come to this passage, which is surely countercultural, would you work in us a love for what your word says and a desire to be light in the darkness, even as that darkness is apparent in your church? Would you be at work in your, in your church, which Jesus Christ purchased with his precious blood, that we would stand upon your word alone and not let the ways of the world influence how we relate to one another and how we, we live our life in, in union with the Lord Jesus. May this word take root in our hearts and may it bear fruit for your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we read God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
As Paul brings his letter to a close, he is addressing the ungodly lifestyle of some in the church in Thessalonica. In particular, he addresses the idol. These are people who could work, but refused to work. And Paul is dealing with them as well as how the church should relate to them. Interestingly, addressing this issue, the idol in the church, those who refuse to work, this may be one reason that Paul wrote this letter in the first place. If you turn back a page or two in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul concludes his first epistle, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he already knew about this pastoral issue, some in the church who refused to work. And that is why he gives his charge at the end of his first letter, admonish them. Well, apparently, the idol in Thessalonica, those who were unwilling to work, apparently they were admonished and they did not change. They continued in their idleness. And so here in Paul's second epistle, he had to give stronger warning. And as we'll see, Paul shows that if these people continue to walk in ungodliness, if those who do not work continue not to work, then they need to be dealt with even more severely. This is a passage that has been understood in the Reformed tradition to teach the doctrine of church discipline. I've entitled this sermon, Discipline and Discipleship, to emphasize the two aspects, not that there are only two, but two aspects of being a member of Christ's church that Paul deals with here. First of all, being a part of Christ's church means discipleship. You are under the authority of Christ. You're under the authority of His body. You use the means of grace. You hear the Word read and preached. You pray. You receive the sacraments, and you enjoy Christian fellowship, all of which are for your growth in grace and for the purity of the church. That's one aspect, is, is discipleship. The other aspect of being a member of Christ's church is discipline. If you claim to be a disciple of Christ, but you do not live as a disciple of Christ, then you come under church discipline. Now, this I don't intend to be a sermon on church discipline per se. There's more to it. There's more to church discipline than, than Paul deals with here. But one thing this passage does show is that being a believer, being a member of Christ's church, means that we call one another to repentance. When someone is living in sin, we call them to repentance out of love for them and out of love for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is what Paul is calling God's people to here, addressing the church regarding those who are walking in ungodliness. He does that in a few ways. First of all, Paul says, keep away from the idol. Look at verse 6 again. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So we see the problem here. Some in the church were walking in idleness. This is the problem of the lazy believer, those who claim to belong to Christ, yet they do not support themselves by gainful employment. Now, we're not talking about small children who don't have jobs, the elderly in the church. Paul's not saying, hey, kids, forget about school. Go out and get a job. Paul's not saying anything like that. These are people in the church who can work, who should be working, but who aren't. They refuse to work. This is the guy in his 30s. He lives in his parents' basement. 
He plays video games all day, and he subsists on Doritos and Mountain Dew. Again, this is someone who can work, but refuses to work. Well, why was this a situation in Thessalonica? Why were there people who refused to work? Well, maybe as, as we've seen throughout these epistles, the eschatological focus that Paul has, maybe these people thought that Christ was about to return any second. Or maybe he had already returned in a secret way. So what's the point in having a job? Maybe they thought work was only for slaves. Work is beneath me. That's not for, for me because, because of my freedom in Jesus. Maybe they were just plain lazy. Whatever the reason, they were living contrary to their Christian profession. And we see more of how these lazy believers lived as Paul peppers it throughout this passage. If you look at the end of verse 11, Paul speaks of them as not busy at work, but busy bodies. As to say, they don't mind their own business. They meddle in other people's business. And if you look at verse 12, Paul commands such people to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So in other words, they weren't making a living for themselves. They were sponging off the living of other people. They were, they were living off the contributions of others. So these people claimed to belong to Christ, but their lives did not match up with that profession. So how, how is the church to relate to such people? Back to verse 6. Notice how Paul issues the command. It is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not Paul's personal preference. And these people really just irked me when I was with them in Thessalonica. This is not his personal preference. This comes from the top. It is a command of the Lord Jesus himself. And the command here is that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. What does this mean? Well, notice, it, it's easy to skip over. Notice how Paul refers to these people in verse 6. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So even though the lives of these people do not match up with their Christian profession, Paul still calls them brother. So here and throughout the passage, Paul is modeling what we might call tough love. He is tender toward them. He calls them brother throughout. He acknowledges that they are still in Christ's church, but he's also firm. Keep away from them, as well as, as other commands we'll see in a, in a moment. So what does that mean, to keep away from the idol? Well, perhaps at first glance, we read it and wonder how that could be loving. How could, how could that be a loving command, keeping away from this brother? Look, look down at verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Again, Paul referring to this ungodly person in the church as a brother. He is a brother as opposed to an enemy. Okay, we are not assuming he is reprobate. We are assuming in a judgment of charity that he is still a brother. Paul is not talking about excommunication here. We're talking about church discipline, but not that last step of church discipline. We're not talking about completely ostracizing this brother, cutting him off from Christian fellowship. So when Paul says, keep away from this brother, he's saying, don't associate with him intimately. He's not saying don't associate with him at all. He's saying don't agree with his ungodly lifestyle. Don't follow his example. Don't associate with him closely and that, because that would lead him to think that he is living in an okay manner, that his lifestyle is fine. So this is not the immediate response we should have to our brothers and sisters when they sin. Remember, Paul initially, in 1 Thessalonians said, admonish these people. 
But when they continued to walk in unrepentance, we now see that Paul is turning up the heat because they have not heeded the admonishment, now keep away from them. The next step of discipline had to come in. So Paul Paul calls God's people to keep away from the idol. Well, secondly, Paul appeals to himself and commands us to imitate him. He says for us to imitate him in verses 7 to 10. So Paul gives a couple reasons why idleness is a sin here. He refers, first of all, to his own work ethic when he was with the Thessalonians, and second, to his command. Look again at verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So just as Paul did in his first epistle, he does again here, recounting how he lived when he was with the Thessalonians. Not only was he busy preaching the gospel to them, he also had another job. He worked another job to pay for his own meals. So he's reminding them, remember when we were together and I preached the gospel to you? Remember how I was not a freeloader like these idle people are? Yes, I was not like them. You need to imitate me and not be like these idle people. Well, why does Paul do that? Why why would he cite himself as an example for us to follow? Well, among many reasons, look at the end of verse 8 that we might not be a burden to any of you. So Paul is saying, I worked harder than I had to so that I would not be a burden to you. I wanted to build you up, not tear you down. So you can see how Paul was radically different from the idol in this congregation. Paul worked two jobs. The idol had no job. Paul wanted the ministry of the gospel to progress in Thessalonica. The idol in the church were hindering its progress. Robert Kara says that Paul cites his hard work as evidence of how much he loved the Thessalonians. Paul did not want to be a burden to them because he loved them. Well, if that is the case, if Paul worked hard not to be a burden to the Thessalonians because he loved them, what does that mean about the idol? If that is the case, the idol in this congregation were being unloving. Paul worked hard because he loved them and wanted their eternal welfare. The idol did not work at all because they only loved themselves. So Paul holds himself up as an example for God's people to imitate. And this causes us to think about work in general. Work, contrary to popular opinion, is not a result of the fall. God created work. Work predates sin. God created work and he called it very good. This is why believers should work. Work is a gift of God. And of course, work is cursed because of sin. There is now toil in work. But in the Lord Jesus, we are able to glorify God by our work. And there's no better reason to work than that. So that is Paul appealing to his example. He also explicitly commanded the Thessalonians to work. Look there again at verse 10. For even when we were with you, We would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Herman Bovink, in 
in his article, Christian Principles and Social Relationships, he, he appeals to this passage saying, the poor are never encouraged to demand their share of earthly goods, but rather to be satisfied and to work faithfully in their occupation. So Paul addresses the issue raised here in other places. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Think of how Paul admonishes the thief in Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And those famous words in Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So throughout the New Testament, it is assumed that God's people will work, that they will have gainful employment and not be a burden to the church and not bring dishonor to the Lord Jesus. And this, this precept that Paul gives in verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. F.F. F. Bruce comments, this precept teaches that it is scandalous for those who profess and call themselves Christians to lead idle lives and, and look to others for support if they themselves have opportunity and strength for working to maintain themselves and to help others who are less fortunate. So for the, the idol in, in Thessalonica, and surely there are equivalents today, if you can work but refuse to work, think about what you were doing. God called work very good, but because you do not work, you are in effect calling it evil. You are calling evil what God has called good. You are a burden to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You live off of them. Even though Christ has served you selflessly, going to the cross to pay for your sin, you are living selfishly, wanting others to serve you. You are taking resources for yourself when those resources should be going to people who are truly in need. And those are just a few reasons. This is why the problem of the lazy believer is a problem. This is why the lazy believer needs this more severe handling. William Hendrickson comments, If he refuses to work, let him go hungry. That may teach him a lesson. That may sound harsh to our tolerant mindset in our culture today, but as we'll see in a moment, this is not to tear down the idol. It is to call them to repentance, which is the most loving thing we could do. Thirdly, Paul deals with what the idol are doing, and what the idol should be doing, what they are doing and what they should be doing. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. This is a, a great wordplay here in verse 11. You're, you're not busy, you're a busy body. You obviously have energy, you're obviously able to do some kind of work, you just don't do good work. You just don't do gainful work. You have energy to poke your nose in other people's business, you have energy to spread gossip, talk about how Jesus will come back any second, or maybe he's already come back in a secret way, so there's no point in you having a job. You have energy to do those things, but you have nothing to show for it. All the busybody stuff you do doesn't bring home a paycheck. And at the end of the day, you don't live off what you've earned, you live off of other people. You make no positive contribution. Rather, you dishonor the Lord Jesus by how you live. That's what the idol are doing. Well, then verse 12, 
what they should be doing. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So instead of being a busybody, just work quietly. Don't get caught up in the noise and disturbance of being a busybody. Just do a good job at your job for God's glory. Working fast food would be better than what you are doing. Working minimum wage is better than what you're doing. At least then you would be working. At least then you would be busy, not a busy body. At least then you would not be dishonoring the Lord Jesus in your lifestyle. Fourthly, Paul encourages us to be faithful and to warn the unfaithful. Be faithful and warn the unfaithful. Look at verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is similar to what Paul says in Galatians 6. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And you can see how that applies to this situation. The idol in Thessalonica are not doing good to the household of faith. They are rather freeloading off of their fellow believers. So Paul is, expli- is explicitly addressing the faithful Thessalonians. The, he's saying those who are idle, they're responsible for themselves. You just keep doing what you're doing. You just mind your business. Just because they're neglecting their duty doesn't mean you should neglect yours. Don't grow weary in doing good just because they don't do good. Carry on as you are. And then we get more instruction on how to relate to the idol in the church. Again, we saw back in verse 6, keep away from them. Again, we should see Paul's words about the idol here as tough love. Because Paul is calling God's people at all points. He is calling them to holiness. And when God's people do not walk in holiness, then there must be discipline. The Belgic Confession, which is a historic Reformed confession of faith, speaks of the difference between the true church of Christ and the false church. How can you tell the difference between the true church and the false church? Well, there are three marks three marks of the true church that distinguish it from the false one. Article 29 in the Belgic Confession. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin. So those are the three marks. The true preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. Not optional, all three must be present. Church discipline is not a backwards, mean-spirited practice. Church discipline exists for the good of the church, and most of all, for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Again, there's more to church discipline than this passage deals with. But here, Paul is talking about calling sinners to repentance. Primarily, all of God's people being at work to do that, not just the officers. Brian DeYoung is a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, He says that church discipline is not punishment in the sense that we just want to make the offender miserable. Church discipline always has a pastoral interest in reclaiming the offender through repentance. 
Just think of it this way. Would it be loving to let someone continue to live in sin? No, not at all. Would it be pleasing to the Lord to let someone who names him as their own to continue living contrary to his commands? Of course, not at all. As difficult as it is for, for our, our tolerant mindset maybe to, to understand and process, we need to appreciate what Paul is saying here. That on the one hand, sin should not be dealt with lightly, and sinners should be called to repentance lovingly. That is one of the purposes of church discipline, as Paul deals with it here, reclaiming the disobedient out of love for them and love for the Lord. So in verse 14, when Paul says, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, in the sense of have no intimate fellowship with him, that he may be ashamed. Let, that sounds harsh. Why should he be ashamed, though? Because a persistent lifestyle of sin is shameful. We should be ashamed of all of our sin, whether it is occasional or lifestyle. Sin is shameful. We should be ashamed of our sin. Okay, that's all well and good. But what is the purpose of this? Again, verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Again, this man, this idle person, walking in ungodliness, Paul affirms he is a brother. He is not an enemy. Paul's not talking about the final step of church discipline. He's not talking about excommunication, removing someone from the communion of the church, handing them over to Satan. Again, as, as Hendrickson comments, the erring one must be looked upon and treated not as a possible reprobate, but as an erring brother. Yes, if this person continues unrepentant, he will be excommunicated. That, that is the final step for those who persist in unrepentance. But at the same time, that shows the patience of the Lord. Think of Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Just think of, of yourself. Maybe you don't identify with this idle person, this erring brother. Regardless, when you become a believer, you still sin. But God's practice in dealing with us when we sin is not instant excommunication. God is patient. He is, he, his practice is to call his people to repentance when we are walking in sin multiple times. That is why church discipline is structured the way it is. You don't get excommunicated instantly when you sin. Then there would be no one in the church. God is patient with his people, continually calling us to repentance. There is a progression in discipline. Each step is more stern than the one before. But each step, short of excommunication, each step is a loving, gracious call to return to your God who loved you in sending his son to pay for your sins. And so the call for our relationship with one another to these idle brothers is that we are to be patient with each other as God is patient with us. Fifthly and finally, Paul speaks of the Lord of the whole church, the Lord of the whole church. Notice in verse 16, who Paul wishes the Lord to be with. Look at verse 16. Then may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. The Lord be with you all. Do you think the idol and the, the people in Thessalonica 
who are not working, whom Paul is admonishing here? Do you think they would have heard this letter read? Yes, of course they would have. And what does Paul say at the conclusion? The Lord be with you all. Even the idle and disobedient are included. The Lord be with you as well. Can you imagine the alternative? If Paul had said, the Lord be with you who are working. The Lord be with you who aren't being a pain. The Lord be with some of you, not, not those guys. The Lord be with you only if you've been a good boy. Paul's not saying get your act together, get cleaned up, get a job, then the Lord will be with you. You don't get cleaned up and go to the Lord. You go to the Lord and get cleaned up. The Lord be with you as well. Even for those who are walking in sin, God extends his mercy to you. He is the Lord of peace here, notice in verse 16. The Lord of peace. When there was enmity between God and man because of our sin, enmity and hostility, Christ made peace, taking our sin upon himself so that instead of enmity, there would be peace. Instead of hostility, there would be friendship with God. So Christ has purchased that peace, purchased peace with God in his death on the cross, and that peace must be applied to us, which is applied only by faith union with the Lord Jesus. That peace with God becomes yours when you trust in him and receive him as your Savior and Lord. What are some points of application we can put to use as we try to improve upon and, and put, and put the, the preaching of the word to practice? First is to pray for the marks of the church. Pray for the marks of the church. Again, those marks are preaching, true preaching, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. All three must be present. Those are the three ways, the three marks by which a true church distinguishes itself from the false church. Pray that the honor of Christ would be vindicated, that Christ's church would be pure. And again, Paul's not just talking to the officers in Thessalonica, he's talking to all of God's people. In a certain sense, all of us have a part in discipline, calling each other to repentance, and in that way, magnifying the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus to us. Secondly, pray for repentance in those who are disciplined. Again, it, it, bears, uh, it bears repeating what repentance is. Shorter Catechism 87, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto, unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. One thing I love about that answer is that it shows that it's not just the, the anger of God. It's not just the wrath of God that leads us to repentance. It's his mercy. God extends his mercy to those who hate him. That is one thing, as, as Paul says in Romans 2, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. So pray for those who are, who are disciplined. For those who have been admonished, pray that they would heed the loving rebuke of their church leaders. For those who have been suspended from the Lord's Supper, pray that they would know as they have never known before the cost of their sin, which is represented in that sacrament. The cost of our sin being nothing less than the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus. Pray that they would cry out to God in spiritual hunger, which is what the Lord's Supper is for, our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So for those who have been suspended from that sacrament, 
Pray that they would feel their hunger, feel their lack of spiritual nourishment, their lack of growth, and out of that lack to cry out to the Lord in repentance. And for those who have been excommunicated, pray that they would return because we know that God loves to receive those who once rejected him because he is a gracious God. Think of the, how the, the father of the prodigal son reacted when he saw his son returning from afar. He ran and greeted him with open arms. That is the, the gracious heart of our God. In conclusion, will you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, very helpful passage on the purpose of discipline, why God has instituted it, and how it is implemented in our own ordinary discipleship. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Finally, that same pastor I mentioned earlier, Brian DeYoung, commenting on this passage, discipline is a prime evidence of God's love for his children. As his true children, through the grace of adoption, we are being trained by the discipline he establishes. God does this for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Though at the moment it seems painful rather than pleasant, it will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness over time. When we have been trained by it, we will be thankful that our Father loved us enough to discipline us. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.